Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. This week, I'm going back to the topic I started this podcast with, witchcraft. My very first episode was about witches and witch hunts in what was known as the burning times in Europe. This time, I'm going across the ocean to the American colonies. Life was harsh for the colonists, and they believed the devil was everywhere. Disease was common, winters were colder and longer than English winters, starvation was a big problem, and violence between the colonists and the Native Americans led to constant anxiety and fear. Someone had to be to blame for all of this. Like their European counterparts, women took the brunt of the blame. Women were seen as inherently sinful and more susceptible to damnation, and their souls were unprotected in the weaker female body. They were considered below men, and although men committed the majority of most crimes, moral and otherwise, legislation on moral crimes was largely directed at women's behavior. Female sexuality was especially an issue. Many witchcraft accusations were directed at any woman that expressed any sort of sexual freedom or had any degree of independence and targeted a lot of women considered to be at the edges of society. Poor women, sometimes single mothers, were the majority of those that were accused. Sometimes, just greed was the basis of accusations, with the accuser standing to gain something from the accused if they are found guilty. In many cases, women accused were married but did not have any sons. If the wife were to outlive her husband, she would inherit his estates. But if she passed away before him, the community would receive his property after his death. This may have played a part into the accusation against Alice Young, the first recorded person in colonial America to be hung as a witch. In 1642, witchcraft became a capital crime in Connecticut, and just five years later, Alice was convicted as a witch. She was married to John Young and had one daughter, Alice Young, but no sons. The records of her trial are now gone, and we don't know many other details, so we don't know what exactly she was charged with. But we do know that for sure she was publicly hanged on May 26, 1647. This is confirmed in the Journal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor John Winthrop, who wrote, One of Windsor arraigned and executed at Hartford for a witch. And a diary entry by Windsor Town Clerk Matthew Grant, who wrote on May 26th, Alice Young was hanged. In February 2017, the Windsor Town Council, the town she was from, unanimously passed a resolution to officially pardon her more than 360 years after her death. Her daughter, Alice, was also charged with witchcraft 30 years later in Springfield, Massachusetts, but was not hanged. What did happen to her, though, is unknown. Alice Young may have been the first in Connecticut, but she was not the last. Her case kicked off a large witch hunt spanning two decades in Hartford, Connecticut, nearly half a century before the more famous Salem witch trials. Like Salem, this was a Puritan settlement and strict in its religious rules. Around the same time as Alice Young's case, a servant named Mary Johnson was the first ever recorded confession of a witchcraft, happening a year before Alice Young's death. This confession came after the extensive torture and interrogation that went on for years, with her confessing to familiarity with the devil, having sexual relations with men and devils, and to even murdering a child. She was hanged after delaying until she gave birth since she was pregnant at the time of sentencing. The only thing she seems to have been guilty of is getting pregnant out of wedlock. 
Then, in March of 1662, eight-year-old Elizabeth Kelly became ill and died within a matter of days. She had been fine right before, having just come back from visiting their neighbor, Goody Ayers. Her parents testified that she became ill after coming home that night and exclaimed, Father, Father, help me, help me. Goodwife Ayers is upon me. She chokes me. She kneels on my belly. She will break my bowels. She pinches me. She will make me black and blue. Accusations of bewitching began to fly across town, with several people being blamed. Shortly after Elizabeth Kelly's death, Anne Cole suddenly began to spout blasphemy and shake violently. One contemporary account says that Anne was, quote, taken with strange fits wherein she, or rather the devil, as tis judged, making use of her lips, held a discord for a considerable time. She blamed her neighbor, Rebecca Greensmith, one of the townspeople described as a lewd, ignorant, considerably aged woman. The accused began to accuse others, even their spouses, as the true witches, and neighbors began testifying against neighbors. Even Goody Ayers' husband blamed Rebecca Greensmith, possibly in an attempt to save his wife. But the most damning testimony came from Rebecca herself, who admitted familiarity with the devil and said that at Christmas they would have a merry meeting to form a covenant. She also implicated her husband, saying he had met seven other witches in the woods, including Goody Ayers, Mary Sanford, and Elizabeth Seeger. Neighbors testified that they had seen Seeger dancing with the other women in the woods and cooking mysterious concoctions in black kettles. The greensmiths were subjected to the swimming test, having their hands and feet bound and thrown into the water, the theory being that if they were witches, they would float. This is like the dunking chairs in Europe, where they subject the person to near drowning simply because they thought a witch would not sink. After they were tried, the greensmiths were indicted, quote, for not having the fear of God before thine eyes, thou hast entertained familiarity with Satan, the grand enemy of God and mankind, and by his help hast acted things in a preternatural way. Literally, they didn't look scared enough. The court's verdict stated, According to the law of God and the established law of this commonwealth, thou deserves to die. Rebecca had confessed in open court, but her husband continually claimed he was innocent. But they, along with Mary Sanford, were sentenced to hang. After their executions, Anne Cole reportedly restored to health. Goody Ayers fled, while Elizabeth Seeger was eventually convicted in 1665, but the governor reversed her verdict the next year. Mary Barnes, another woman from Farmington, Connecticut, also somehow got caught up in the region's witch hunts and was convicted and hung with the Greensmiths and Sanford. These four were the last witch executions of the state, although they were still accusations and trials. The later ones had a new requirement of testimony from multiple witnesses, not just one. Also, authorities like John Winthrop the Younger, Connecticut's colonial governor, began questioning the value of so-called evidence in these witch trials, as well as what agendas the witnesses may have. Many accused after 1662 were acquitted, some even receiving damaged awards for slander. In Fairfield, Connecticut in 1692, several more were accused, but none of the convicted were sentenced to death. That same year, though, the Salem witch trials were unfolding. Salem was split into two parts at the time, with the Massachusetts Bay Port Community of Salem Town, which would become modern-day Salem, and Salem Village, today called Danvers, a poorer community of farmers of about 500 people about 10 miles inland. 
There was a noticeable social divide in the village, exacerbated by the two rival leading families, the Porters, who had strong ties to the wealthy merchants in Salem Town, and the Putnams, who wanted more autonomy for the village and represented the poorer farming families. In 1689, Samuel Paris, a Boston merchant who had been living in Barbados, came to Salem to be the pastor at the village's congressional church. He got this position thanks to influence from the Putnams. Along with him were his wife, their three children, a niece, and two slaves who were originally from Barbados, a man named John Indian and a woman named Tituba. Many of the people thought of him as a greedy and rigid man. Early into his tenure, he tried to get more compensation, including ownership of the parsonage, which did not sit well with many of the congregation's members and caused even more of a rift in the community. These feuds could possibly be one of the major reasons behind why the trials ended up happening. In January of 1962, Reaver's 9-year-old daughter Betty, his 11-year-old niece Abigail Williams, and their 11-year-old friend Ann Putnam Jr. began to have fits doing things like screaming, making odd sounds, throwing things, contorting their bodies, and complaining of biting and pinching sensations. In February, the local doctor William Gribbs could find nothing wrong with them and blamed it on supernatural reasons. When the girls were pressed for why this was happening, they claimed they were bewitched by the slave Tituba, Sarah Good, who was a beggar woman, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly bedridden woman that had been scorned for having a romantic relationship with an indentured servant. All women at the bottom of society with little to no protection. Osborne and Good denied being witches, but Tituba, after repeatedly questioned, told the magistrates what they wanted to hear and gave three days of testimony, saying that she made a deal with the devil and told strange, vividly detailed stories. She described encounters with the devil's familiars and with a tall, dark man from Boston who came upon her to sign the devil's book. She also claimed to have seen Good's and Osborne's names in the book, along with seven other names that she couldn't read. The magistrates had a confession and what they considered acceptable evidence that there were more witches in the community, and so the hysteria around witches grew. Other girls and young women began to have fits, including Ann Putnam's mother and cousin Mary Walcott and the Putnam family's servant Mercy Lewis. As more were accused of being witches, members of higher classes of society also joined the accused, the first being Rebecca Nurse, a prominent woman in the community. Weeks went by, and many of the accused witches turned out to be enemies of the Putnams. Putnam family members and their in-laws ended up being the accusers in dozens of cases. After weeks of informal hearings and imprisonments, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony intervened and called for special courts to oversee the witch trials. They were presided over by the colony's lieutenant governor, and there were seven judges. The accused did not get any sort of counsel and had to defend themselves. Victims claiming to have seen and been attacked by specters of the accused was called spectral evidence and was the most damning for someone. When the accused would testify on the witness stand, the girls and women that had accused them would writhe, whimper, and babble in the gallery, which seemed to provide more evidence of the specter's demonic presence. Anyone who confessed, or confessed and named other witches, was spared thanks to the Puritan belief that they would receive punishment from God if they confessed, so the judges did not need to sentence them. Those that insisted that they were innocent were not so lucky. Anyone that thought any of this was unfair or unjust remained silent, afraid that if they objected to what was happening, they would be accused of witchcraft themselves. 
Bridget Bishop, a woman that was considered a gossip and promiscuous, was the first defendant to be convicted, and she was hanged on June 10th at Gallows Hill in Salem Village. On June 19th, five more were hanged, including Sarah Good and Rebecca Nurse. Sarah Good responded to her conviction by saying she was no more a witch than the judge was a wizard. Eight more were hanged on September 22nd, one of which was Martha Corey, whose husband Giles had been recently pressed, the interrogation method of piling stones on top of a board on top of the person, until he died from this. He had refused to enter a plea when he was accused, and suffered for two days of pressing when they tried to force him to claim himself guilty or innocent. As the trials continued, the accusations began to spread to the other towns and communities. Finally, even the governor's wife was accused, and he stepped in on October 29th and ordered the special court to halt their proceedings. He established a superior court of judicature instead, and instructed that spectral evidence could not be admitted to the court. Trials then resumed in January, and three of the 56 indicted ended up being convicted, but they were pardoned by the governor in May of 1963, along with all of the rest that were held in custody. The trials came to an end with 19 people having been hanged, 14 of which were women, and five died while in custody, with Sarah Osborne among those. Tituba, the Putnam slave, ended up being freed after 13 months in prison. In January 1697, a day of fasting and contemplation for the tragic results of the trials was declared by the General Court of Massachusetts. That same month, one of the judges publicly acknowledged his error and guilt in the proceedings. The General Court declared in 1702 that the trials had been unlawful. Anne Putnam Jr. apologized for her role as an accuser in 1706. In 1711, 22 of the 33 convicted were exonerated by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which also paid some 600 pounds to the families of the victims, and the state of Massachusetts formally apologized for the trials in 1957. Finally, in 2001, the last 11 convicted were fully exonerated. The Salem Witch Trials contributed to changes in the U.S. court procedures, with things like guaranteeing the legal right to re legal representation and the right to cross-examine one's accuser and assuming innocence until proven guilty. The city of Salem seemed ashamed of the witch trials, enough so that when Arthur Miller came to do research for his play The Crucible, no one would talk to him. But in the 60s, when the show Bewitched aired and with the success of The Crucible, witches entered the mainstream. Salem entered into tourism, boosting its local economy. The Salem Witch Trials are constantly featured in pop culture, from movies to TV shows to books. Most that were called witches were blamed for misfortune or tragedy, witches being the scapegoat for these things. But in Virginia in 1730, one of the last trials to take place in the colonies was against a woman named Mary. Mary was charged with using witchcraft to find lost items and treasure above all things. Doesn't sound so bad, but she was convicted and whipped 39 times. Virginia lost all of its records of fires during the Civil War, but from what remains, it appears that the colony, at least, was reluctant to execute anyone accused of witches, choosing imprisonment or some other punishment instead. But like everywhere else, those accused of witchcraft were overwhelmingly women, usually the unpopular or eccentric members of the community. Virginia also had the first witch accusation in the Amer American colonies in 1626, her name was Joan Wright of James City County, a married woman practicing as a midwife. Several of her neighbors testified that she had caused the death of a newborn, killed crops and livestock, 
and accurately predicted the deaths of other colonists. Despite admitting that she did have knowledge of witchcraft, she was acquitted. Another Virginia woman accused of harming others through witchcraft was not so lucky, but at least she did not lose her life like those in Salem. Grace Sherwood of Princess Anne County was accused in 1698 of bewitching her neighbor's pigs to death and bewitching their cotton. Later that year, another neighbor claimed that Grace came to her one night, wrote her, and went out of the keyhole or crack of the door like a black cat. Grace and her husband both brought defamation cases to court, but both cases were defeated. Rumors and accusations against her continued until 1706, when Grace was brought to trial. The court justices decided to put her to the swim test, which at that point was already considered controversial and was no longer used in Europe. She floated in the water, which meant she was guilty. She was convicted and imprisoned rather than executed, but was released by 1714. Around 78% of all of the witchcraft cases in the colonies were against women. Most men accused were because of ties to those of the accused, such as being married to the accused or a sibling. Many of the women just didn't conform enough to the rigid gender roles of the time. If they were acquitted, they would be back in their communities, but it was expected of them to change their behavior to better fit the ideal of what a woman should be if they wanted to convince everyone that they were not working with the devil anymore. Living in the colonies could be harsh, and being a woman in the colonies was sometimes even harsher. That's all for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Story Session, and make sure to click follow for more episodes.